Artificial intelligence in drug discovery is a relatively new field. It's a very important field. And today we're speaking with one of the most prominent voices in AI and drug discovery. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst. Thank you so much for watching. Before we begin, please subscribe on YouTube and sus subscribe to our newsletter. You can do that right now. Alex Javoronkov, he is the CEO of InSilico. Tell us briefly about InSilico Medicine and tell us the things that you're working on. We are focused primarily on applying next-gen AI techniques to drug discovery, biomarker development, and also aging research. And um, we focus specifically on uh, uh, two uh, on two machine learning techniques. It's uh, generative adversarial networks and uh, reinforcement learning. So those uh, techniques uh, we are most expert uh, uh, in uh, in our field, and um, we use those techniques uh, for kind of two purposes. One is uh, identifying biological targets uh, and uh, um, constructing biomarkers uh, from multiple data types, uh, and also generating new molecules, new molecular structures with specific set of properties. So we were one of the first companies, uh, possibly the first one, to uh, uh, generate new molecules uh, using this new technique called generative serial networks. It's kind of AI imagination, uh, and uh, validate those molecules experimentally. Give us some context. Why? It, what is the drug development pipeline? Why is it so hard? Let's talk about that, and then we can shift to how. AI makes that better, makes it easier. Drug discovery and drug development is a very lengthy process. And uh, it's also one of those uh, processes where you've got more failures than successes, actually much more failures than successes. Uh, it takes uh, more than $2.6 billion to develop a drug uh, and bring it to the market to address a specific disease. And that's after the molecule has been tested in animals. Uh, and also there is 92% failure rate after the molecule has been tested in uh, animals. Uh, when it goes into humans, it fails 92% of the time. So the process is not only lengthy, but also risky. Usually the time it takes to uh, discover and develop a molecule is around a decade. So people who initiate the process are not always there uh, when the molecule launches. And um, the process is comprised of several steps. So first one is hypothesis generation. So you come up with a hypothesis, a theory uh, of uh, a certain disease and uh, uh, identify relevant targets. So you theorize about what kind of proteins are implicated in a disease condition uh, and uh, what proteins are causal. Afterward, you go and develop uh, either an antibody or a small molecule for this uh, um, protein target. And um, if you are developing a small, a small molecule, I uh, usually start with uh, screening uh, large libraries of compounds that might uh, hit this particular target and do all kinds of uh, um, experiments to see how well those small molecules bind to this target. Afterward, you select, select several hits. You identify what kind of uh, molecules uh, um, fit best for this protein target. 
and start doing all kinds of experiments on those molecules to see if uh, uh, if they work very well in a biological system, in a disease-relevant assay, uh, in a mouse, in a, in a dog or other animal. Uh, and then you uh, file for IND with the FDA uh, to get uh, the mo- uh, to get the molecule into clinical trials. So after that uh, process is complete, we are getting into drug development and starting uh, clinical trials. Uh, it starts with phase one, which is uh, safety. Phase two, you test for efficacy, and phase three, you test for both in a larger uh, clinical setting, a larger population. And then uh, uh, you might want to go for a phase, a phase four or start launching the product mm-hmm. uh, and post-marketing research. So that process takes uh, more than 10 years usually and uh, fails 92% of the time. So with AI, you can really uh, play in pretty much every segment from uh, early stage drug discovery where AI can assist you with a hypothesis model uh, and um, essentially pulling out uh, uh, the needles uh, from the haystack uh, with a target ID, with small molecule uh, identification, with virtual screening, with uh, generation of novel molecules with specific properties, uh, with uh, uh, planning your clinical trial, Mm -hmm. uh, clinical trial design with enrollment of, uh, of the clinical trial. Uh, and then also for predicting the outcomes of clinical trials. Where does AI begin to shorten that process, make that process better? So if you go at the very early uh, steps of the pipeline and start working on the hypothesis generation and target identification, uh, usually you have uh, multiple um, kind of paths to pursue. So one path is to look at the literature and uh, identify uh, promising areas that have been uncovered by scientists in the past and were published in uh, peer-reviewed literature. Uh, And uh, ideally, uh, these targets, those hypotheses, uh, uh, were not implicated uh, in this disease that you are looking at uh, um, uh, by by, by somebody else. uh, AI can help you mine massive amounts of literature and also other associated data types to identify signals that uh, a certain target might be implicated in the disease. So uh, we at Ancilico usually uh, start with grants data. So we look at biomedical grants. We monitor about $1.7 trillion worth of grant money uh, over the past 25 years. And then we look at how those grants progress into uh, publications, into patents, into clinical trials, and then uh, into products on the market. So we follow this idea from from idea to and from money to uh, to money. So from money uh, on the market, and we also look at how money become data. So usually, when the government is supporting certain study. Uh, the data needs to be reposited in a public repository for other people to replicate it and also for a common good. So we try to follow the money into data. If the data is not there, we try to uh, contact the scientist and uh, uh, get the data from, from the scientist or to encourage or and to encourage uh, the scientist to put the data into the public repository. So 
Uh, we start with um, text data, uh, data uh, databases, but also link it to uh, link this data to uh, what, what to omics uh, data. It's basically everything that ends with omics is called omics data. So transcriptomics, uh, genomics, uh, metabolomics, uh, you name it. So uh, metagenomics, uh, and um, we work primarily with gene expression data. So we look at uh, how the level of expression of certain genes or entire networks uh, changes from, uh, let's say, healthy state to uh, disease. And uh, we deconvolute those uh, changes, those signatures of disease into individual targets, establish causality models, and identify uh, what kind of proteins could be targeted with a small molecule. And then we go back into the prior art, into text, and see if anybody has published anything that uh, strengthens our hypothesis. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know our hypothesis is wrong if the signal is not there in text, because uh, sometimes uh, the humans just couldn't uh, really uh, associate a certain target with, uh, with, with a disease using uh, older methods. Uh, but it gives us a little bit more confidence uh, to see that you know somebody already touched uh, on um, on this challenge uh, uh, and on this target um, before. So, Alex, is the is the key then at this point that the that the various AI techniques that you're using enable you to discern uh, patterns? in the data that otherwise would not be, the, those signals, as you said, that otherwise you could not pick out? Is that the key issue here? So yes, but really we are aggregating enormous uh, amounts of data that is just not possible to process using human intelligence. And we are also aggregating and the grooming those data types together. Uh, and sometimes those data types are completely incompatible uh, and it's impossible to, you know, just suture them together uh, using standard tools. So you really need to train deep neural networks on uh, uh, several data types at the same time uh, in order for them to generalize and for, in order for us to be able to extract relevant features that uh, are present in uh, several data types at the same time. So some of the data types that we work with are completely incomprehensible to the human mind, to the human intelligence, like, for example, gene expression or uh, movement or uh, uh, cardiovascular activity sc uh, scanning uh, or um, uh, ultrasound, for example. So we manage to bring those data types together using AI and then identify relevant targets that uh, basically trigger a certain condition. At Insilico, is your core competence in the biology and medicine or in developing the AI techniques? And is it possible to even split those two? So in our case, we are good at both. Uh, and we hire competitively uh, internationally. So we actually hire through competitions where we put very challenging tests out. Uh, in order for people to try and solve them very, very quickly. And those challenges uh, are usually uh, in combination of, you know, developing an AI method plus uh, solving a complex biological or chemical problem. 
Uh, however, when you're looking at uh, uh, really great AI scientists, uh, they're usually not great in biology or great in chemistry. They're good in math. And that is why uh, some percentage of our company are just great mathematicians who are developing uh, novel methods for uh, uh, bridging chemistry and biology using deep learning, for example. And um, uh, part of the company uh, is specifically focused on uh, applications of already existing techniques uh, like GANs and reinforcement learning uh, to uh, existing problems in chemistry and biology. So those people are usually on the applied side and uh, uh, they know both chemistry and biology and uh, they can talk to the mathematicians and they can do some basic uh, research in, uh, in AI as well. And of course, we just have uh, um, pure play biologists and chemists who are also necessary in order to validate some of those, uh, uh, some of the results of, uh, of our AI. So that's why we have such a such a large and diverse and international team because you really need to have uh, those three areas covered: the methods, the applications, and the validation. We have an interesting question from Chris Peterson on Twitter, who says this. He says, grid-based parallel Fortran programs are still being used for some pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic uh, studies. Do you see AI replacing old, the old school code, enhancing it, or advancing in parallel? So I think uh, uh, currently we need to advance in parallel. And uh, um, of course, some of the old techniques and some of the very primitive uh, model dynamics are still being used by really top experts in drug discovery today. But most of those methods are being significantly accelerated by high-performance computing and uh, uh, AI. So typical um, software that's been around uh, for, you know, for a very long time, like Schrodinger, for example, uh, the company has been around since 92. Uh, this guy's made major breakthroughs in multiple areas uh, uh, and uh, kind of managed to advance uh, older algorithms uh, uh, to, uh, to solve uh, uh, very complex problems. Uh, and I think that, I mean, at Ancilico, we try to reinvent everything from scratch. And uh, uh, we write our own software. Uh, but of course, we know many of our collaborators who just like to take small pieces of our kind of big salami that we're developing and play around with it uh, today. Uh, they might be using uh, some more classical tools that you cannot get around uh, um, around today. Uh, but why? Ideally, uh, you need to have a seamless uh, pipeline which uh, uh, identifies the targets, uh, generates the molecules, and runs those molecules through a large number of simulations in one seamless pipeline. That's what we are building, and uh, that's uh, that's our holy grail. But of what? course, many uh, many companies, many um, uh, groups are trying to uh, uh, do the Lego game and uh, try to use multiple tools uh, with varying outputs uh, uh, to solve the same problem. Why, why do you develop your own tools? Uh, again, just because uh, many of the methods that we're using are so new that uh, they're incompatible with older tools. And uh, there are many groups uh, that claim to, to do AI, but 
essentially what they are doing is they are mechanics shops taking off-the-shelf software and uh, trying to uh, bridge some gaps in pharma R&D using those tools. Uh, we don't do that. We develop everything from scratch. So from target ID to small molecule generation. So now we have discovered, we have spoken about uh, using your techniques to uncover potential candidates. The next step is evaluating. So first we have to uncover possibilities and you do you do that by aggregating all of this data and then mining that data using your the various techniques. Now you've done that, how do you evaluate the candidates that you've uncovered initially? So usually when uh, you um, you are left with a list of uh, protein targets uh, for a specific disease and you are trying to prioritize you try to annotate those, uh, um, those proteins with as many scores as possible. So you're looking at uh, whether this uh, protein target has ever been implicated in, uh, in toxicity. How is it connected with everything else? Uh, which tissue does it play in uh, more? Uh, how does it interact with other proteins? Is it druggable? Is it druggable with a small molecule or with an antibody? Did anybody else touch it? Uh, what is the patent uh, space around the, around the molecule? Has anybody tried uh, taking it uh, into the clinic with, uh, uh, with a small molecule or an antibody uh, for a specific disease? So there are many, many, many scoring functions that uh, you need to consider. And at the end, uh, uh, when you basically are left with uh, uh, a very small set of targets, um, then you also test them in a variety of biological systems uh, to see uh, which ones are more, which one is more relevant for, for your disease of interest. And um, I'll give you an example, a uh, case study. So for example, we are very interested in fibrosis and uh, fibrosis is not a, um, not a very simple process to, uh, to describe, uh, and there are multiple, multiple types of fibrosis. So there is uh, uh, IPF, uh, so pulmonary fibrosis, there is uh, smoking-induced fibrosis in the lung, there is aging-induced fibrosis in the lung. Uh, so we've identified more than 120 types of fibrosis by comparing normal tissue to tissue afflicted by uh, a certain uh, condition that is associated with fibrosis. And um, uh, we just recently did a case study where we uh, looked at the IPF, so pulmonary fibrosis, uh, identified a list of targets for this condition. And uh, our list was 50 targets. Uh, and um, we looked at when uh, those targets are more active and more, um, more disease relevant at what stage of the disease, because I think if you kind of catch it later, uh, or address it later um, when there is just so much, so many symptoms, uh, you are going to be treating the symptoms, not the cause. And um, uh, in our case, we've identified uh, a large list of targets that are likely to be very relevant early in the, in the disease progression. And um, uh, then we looked at what, uh, uh, what targets are um, novel. So you look for novelty. So what, uh, what targets people did not uh, focus on as much? 
So you don't want to focus on old targets. Uh, then we uh, looked at what targets are druggable, so where we could actually come up with uh, a small molecule from a vendor library, or we can generate uh, a molecule from scratch. Um, and then we looked at what targets could be validated in a specific set of assays for, uh, for fibrosis. And where's the, where's the, uh, the impact of the AI techniques that you're using in this? So usually it's for uh, scoring. So you identify multiple scores for those targets. So um, uh, in our case, uh, the target is annotated with more than 50 scores. So whether it has been implicated in a certain condition before, whether it uh, interacts with other proteins in a specific way, uh, whether it uh, is likely to lead to toxicity. So those predictors that basically give you this kind of score and a probability that this target is, uh, uh, is the most relevant one, uh, these scores uh, are deep learned. So they, they, they come from, um, uh, we, we, we develop them using machine learning. We have uh, another interesting question from Twitter. This is from Shreya Amin, and she says, how does this type of research that you've been describing using AI in the process uh, compare between academia and industry? Uh, sure, it's a very, very good question. Uh, so in the industry, in, the, in big pharma, uh, people are a little bit less adventurous. Uh, they are trying to develop uh, the various techniques to really solve a problem and uh, uh, make incremental changes. It's not for publication purposes. In uh, academia, people are much more uh, uh, innovative and adventurous, and of course, they try to publish, um, and that's where the innovation comes from, primarily. So we at Encilico, we sit in between academia and industry, so we publish at the rate of about two research papers a month. That is uh, a lot for even some of the academic groups. Uh, just to also prove the concept and uh, uh, explain uh, where we're going. Um, so academics, I think, are much more productive nowadays uh, when it comes to uh, developing new methods and uh, uh, showing new directions. However, uh, the disconnect between uh, you know, really good computer scientists that are developing novel, novel techniques for, that might be relevant for drug discovery, uh, they very often are so far away from biology and, uh, and chemistry that they put the papers out and uh, the paper is really, I mean, it's brilliant from the machine learning perspective, but it's really, really poor from uh, uh, real world applications. And uh, very often they don't really understand that they overfitted somewhere or if it's a completely irrelevant output that they're getting or input uh, only after somebody uh, tries it in biology and chemistry. So uh, very often, uh, and nowadays it's actually more prevalent, uh, a lot of people put papers on archive, so in a repository, and uh, with a catchy title, so it goes viral and uh, gets picked up by the browsers or uh, by, by, by Google or by uh, um, some news outlets. And uh, uh, they get recognition on PR for this work, but then you try to replicate what they did or even just read the paper carefully. 
and you realize that it's not going to work in the real world. And I think those kind of papers and those kind of efforts, early efforts uh, by academic groups, and specifically without going through peer review, um, uh, also put a lot of skepticism in, uh, in big pharma. So people just don't think that this many techniques are um, relevant or applicable or transformative for their business. Let's talk about uh, the the team construction aspect because one of the things that you've mentioned a couple of times is the importance of both the machine learning capabilities as well as the biology capabilities and these are these are very specialized skills and so how do you construct teams that enable both sides to work together and create something that one or the other could not do alone so that's another very good question and uh, um, in our case that's one of the reasons why we are growing so slowly so we've been uh, uh, in business for uh, five years now, uh, but we are still 66 people. And uh, um, one of the reasons why for, for the slow organic growth is because it takes time to really integrate uh, the AI scientists with biologists and chemists. So it's very difficult to find people who are good at both at the same time. So usually you are good at math uh, or you are good at uh, uh, you're good in chemistry, or uh, you really need to have uh, uh, some good programming skills to be able to, uh, uh, you know, do an API um, and properly combine uh, uh, your technology with somebody else's. Uh, so we try to um, work in team of three or teams of three or four uh, on, uh, on on specific therapeutic projects where one person is uh, uh, very good in chemistry or biology, one person is good in AI, and another person is good in uh, just basic IT. So uh, it's basically teams of uh, three or four people. Uh, and on top of them, there is an infrastructure, uh, an organizational infrastructure that uh, helps manage those teams. Uh, and um, uh, we also separated uh, the uh, kind of pure play uh, AI team uh, from everybody else's so they could uh, work on the methods uh, without being um, uh, brought into the applied domain. So getting this kind of talent uh, uh, who, who, who are willing to really contribute to methods development and um, develop novel algorithms that is very, very difficult. Getting people who are good in application of, uh, uh, of, of already developed methods, that is rather easy. Uh, getting the two uh, to work together, that is very hard. And uh, to do this, we again, we, we try to pursue organic growth and work on projects uh, in small teams. And in fact, we have a question from Twitter on this subject of your business model. Chris Peterson's asking great questions. Thanks so much, Chris. Is asking he, uh, do you contract? Are you contracted to look for specific therapies, or do you are you developing molecules from scratch and hoping to license them for uh, clinical trials through distribution? 
So we've been in business for five years and we've explored multiple business models. Uh, as an AI company, you have to explore because uh, um, otherwise it's very, very difficult to, uh, to, to scale on one business model and it's also quite risky. So we started as a service company and started partnering with pharmaceutical companies and uh, with uh, um, biotechnology companies and also with venture funds um, where we provided a service uh, or provided a system to them. So we learned uh, the applications that uh, uh, people are looking for and started uh, developing our own uh, small molecules, uh, discovering our own small molecules and then licensing them. So our current business model is uh, actually very simple and, uh, uh, and, and actually allows us to scale. So we work with uh, venture capital firms that uh, like, that really know the business of uh, uh, biotechnology and uh, are pursuing drug development um, and drug discovery. So they guide us uh, into where we need to identify targets and, uh, small mo and generate small molecules. And then they form teams around those small molecules and targets, fund them, and let them uh, do a little bit more validation and development of those uh, target and molecule associations. Uh, and what we get, uh, we get uh, a small upfront payment uh, initially, and then we get uh, uh, milestone payments uh, as the molecules progress through the various uh, steps of validation. And then we get some royalties. So usually if you consider the buy a box uh, or the... Um, uh, future revenues that might come from the molecule, uh, those deals are very, very substantial. But initial uh, uh, payment is rather small. Uh, that is why we have another business that uh, software licensing business where we license some of our software tools to, to others uh, to generate some revenue um, and ensure that we are sustainable, consistent, and also get some feedback on how well the software works. Okay. If we're if if we need to add more features, uh, and another um, business model is that uh, we do have some joint ventures, uh, for example, a joint venture with a company called Juvenescence, and uh, they are developing the molecules that we provide to them. Okay, so you have a, a diverse range of things that you're working on and trying that support your business model efforts, essentially. Uh, correct, but what we are mostly interested in is not the immediate revenue. Uh, in most of those licensing arrangements and engagements, we get some data back. And we pretty much became one of the largest data factories uh, uh, in the world, getting data back from preclinical experiments. Hmm, that's interesting. We have another question from Twitter. And uh, this is from Trovato Christian. He is a biomedical engineer, and he's a PhD student in computational biology in the Department of Computer Science at Oxford. And by the way, it's, I find it very interesting that computational biology falls under the Department of Computer Science rather than the Department of uh, of biology. So his question is, are there any examples of drugs developed by AI only? Uh, at this point of time, uh, there is no such example. Uh, you always have a human in, uh, in between. Uh, I hope that in the very near future, we'll be able to show that the pipeline 
where no human was involved from target identification to small molecule generation um, might be able to churn some of those molecules, uh, uh, some of those promising molecules. But at this point in time, uh, the experiment is king. So unless you uh, can validate your uh, techniques experimentally, it won't really go forward. So I have never seen any example of uh, a molecule uh, ending up even in, in, in mice at this point in time that is completely generated using AI. What's the obstacle preventing using AI to go from beginning to end? Well, because uh, uh, of the failure rates in, uh, uh, in pharma in general. So there are very, very few success stories to train on. And uh, those success stories are very, very diverse. So in some areas, uh, um, it's easy to validate whether your algorithm is producing some meaningful output. But in many cases, you really need to go uh, and validate at every step of the way. So that is why when you're building this salami uh, that is uh, allowing you to go end to end, you need to ensure that you validate every slice of the salami and validate it uh, internally, but also validate it with external partners. That's what we are trying to do as well. So eventually that, that data may be there, but it sounds like it's just far too early at this stage. At this stage, nobody tried to virtualize drug discovery completely using AI and do it seamless without human intervention. In many areas, it's actually not possible just because uh, uh, biology is so diverse and, um, uh, and medicine is so diverse that it's very, very difficult to have a solution that would fit all. So that's why people are going primarily after cancer, just because it's e a little bit easier to validate and the uh, specific types of cancer like, for example, solid tumors, where you can uh, do a xenograft and see if, you know, the tumor shrinks in a mouse if you feed it, if you, if you give it a specific molecule. So there needs to be validation at every step of the way. And uh, uh, at this point in time, those end-to-end -end pipelines will work only in certain therapeutic modalities. Let me ask you another question from Twitter. And this is uh, from Shreya Amin. Again, a great question. Interesting one. And she says this, she says, uh, using existing AI techniques, which areas uh, from the perspective of types of drugs, diseases, conditions, and so forth, are closest to breakthroughs or have made the most progress? And what's most difficult? I'll give you an example that I'm very, very familiar with. So we've got uh, um, some JAK inhibitors, so uh, Janus kinase inhibitors uh, that are developed completely using um, uh, generative adversarial networks and reinforcement learning. So I think those are kind of the most promising techniques for uh, de novo molecular design, period. Uh, and um, uh, we're currently in mice with those. So went all the way from uh, enzymatic assays to, to mice and uh, uh, showed that we can now uh, achieve selectivity, specificity with those molecules, and those molecules have many other properties. Uh, and those are pretty kind of common techniques nowadays, uh, both uh, the GAN that we used and the reinforcement learning technique that we used. Uh, it's not something super new. So we actually switched uh, 
uh, our uh, R&D in a slightly different direction. Where is all of this going over the next, I don't know, three, four years, two to four years? Let's not go out 10 years, but over the next few years, where where is this going to be? I think that companies uh, like ours are going to uh, put much more emphasis on their internal R&D instead of uh, collaborating with Big Pharma, because collaborating with Big Pharma is uh, uh, usually a path to nowhere, because uh, it's either death by pilot or uh, it's uh, uh, they just ingest this in, uh, expertise internally and catch up. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they have so they are so bureaucratic that it's very difficult to change. And at the same time, at the CEO level, big pharma companies are more focused on uh, increasing sales or buying other companies to increase sales or to get uh, late stage clinical assets. Uh, so phase two, phase three assets. So the internal R and D is actually not being viewed as a a huge priority. I mean, regardless of uh, what they think, it's uh, it's fact. Uh, and um, usually, it's kind of the fifteen twenty percent on the uh, on, on on the income statement that needs to be there because otherwise, the investors are not going to invest in the company. Uh, but the productivity of this uh, uh, internal R and D is usually very low. So uh, I think that smaller biotechnology companies that embrace uh, AI and, and embrace virtualization of uh, drug discovery, uh, they are going to be very successful. And there are several cases that I admire uh, in the industry, like, for example, Nimbus Therapeutics. This guy has managed to uh, uh, virtualize the entire drug discovery and development process and get some you know, phase two uh, assets to market. Uh, and, and license them. So um, as the uh, as AI improves and starts solving more problems in the pharmaceutical R&D pipeline, so from hypothesis generation and target ID and small molecule generation and um, uh, prediction of uh, the various properties of the molecule and clinical trials uh, and better stratification techniques, uh, I think that people who really understand the process and can virtualize it will be the winners. And so far, I know several companies that are doing this. So some companies are working with us. Uh, some are in the stealth mode. And um, I think they are going to be the winners uh, going forward. But in, when, when, when you talk about drug discovery, two to three years, it's actually a very, very short time. In many other areas of uh, uh, you know human development, if you ask me to plan five years ahead, I won't be able to because things are changing very quickly. In pharma, that's not the case. We really need to do the experiments and uh, uh, get things right. Do you want to just very briefly tell us about that the the last research you did on either uh, longevity or smoking? I know we're out of time, but just very briefly. <laughs> uh, sure. We just published a very fun paper uh, showing that smoking accelerates uh, aging. Uh, we uh, one of the areas that we are focusing on. Um, uh, is age prediction using multiple data types. So from pictures, blood tests, uh, uh, transcriptomic data, uh, proteomic data, microbiomic data. Uh, we use this data to predict uh, the person's age uh, reasonably accurately. 
And um, uh, we then look at what kind of uh, interventions or behavioral modifications, uh, what kind of lifestyles uh, contribute to that person looking younger or older. Uh, and uh, we did this exercise in Canada. Uh, we worked with the University of Lethbridge and uh, the government of uh, uh, Alberta to process uh, a large uh, data set of smokers and non-smokers of varying ages, uh, looking only at anonymized blood tests, uh, just very, very few parameters from a recent blood test. So first of all, we built a predictor of uh, the smoking status. So now I can, uh, with reasonable confidence, say whether you're smoking or not, uh, looking at the blood test. But also we showed that uh, uh, people who smoke they look older to the deep neural net uh, trained on, the, on, on, on their blood tests uh, uh, than non-smokers. And uh, once we published, uh, it actually went rather viral, and uh, we got very positive feedback. Like, for example, you know, my daughter uh, is considering quitting smoking uh, just because she doesn't want to look old. Um, so people don't really care about their health, but they really care about how, how they look. So if you don't want to look, look old, just quit smoking. Okay, great advice. Alex, thank you so much for taking time. Everybody, uh, please subscribe on YouTube. Check out cxotalk.com for uh, lots of videos and subscribe to our newsletter. Have a great day, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.